to the School of Wellbeing podcast. I am your host, Meg Durham, wellbeing speaker, educator and coach. I have taught and worked in schools across metropolitan and regional Australia and I am dedicated to supporting big-hearted educators to prioritise their wellbeing and take courageous action despite the everyday pressures of school life. Because I want educators to know, you don't have to sacrifice your health, relationships and happiness to be a great teacher. Together, we are going to learn the lessons to help us teach well and be well. Let the learning begin. Hello and welcome to episode 89. I'm Meg Durham and I'm thrilled that you are here today. In today's conversation, I'm going to be talking with Amy Green about her new book, Teacher Wellbeing, a real conversation for teachers and leaders. Amy is a thought leader in the space of improving workplace culture and well-being in schools. She is a speaker, facilitator, coach and founder of the Wellness Strategy. As a former teacher and school leader, Amy is determined to change the way we view well-being to support our everyday and workplace needs. With a background in teaching and leadership and having studied human behaviour and positive psychology, Amy brings to the wellbeing space a fresh approach to what can be a sensitive topic. Amy guides workplaces to understand the difference between individual and collective wellbeing to ensure all employees feel safe, valued and fulfilled, and to bring about a workplace culture in which all staff thrive and flourish. In this conversation, we discuss why engaging in real conversations matter, the common mistakes that we make when it comes to teacher wellbeing, the power of taking radical responsibility, and so much more. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Amy Green. Amy, welcome to the School of Wellbeing podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited for this conversation. This conversation is going to get really real because you and I both work in schools every week. And we see some common patterns, but also some things that are quite different depending on the context. And I'm really keen to explore your book, Teacher Wellbeing, A Real Conversation for Leaders and Teachers. What motivated you to write this book? Well, actually, the book that you hold in your hand is not the book I started writing. I actually started writing a completely different book, which in some ways I'm a little bit embarrassed to say I thought that was what we needed. My amazing publisher, Alicia, contacted me and said, would you consider writing a book? And of course, it's an opportunity I didn't want to say no to. I was like, yeah. And then I had no idea what I was going to write. I started writing 10 mindset tips for teachers. And I got to about April and the book was due end of July, August. And I read it and I was probably five or 6,000 words in and I thought, oh, this is not what we need. This is not a mindset shift. What am I doing? And I had to go through a really deep reflection process of what is going to help not only create impact for schools and teachers, but give hope. That was really what I wanted to be able to offer. And I think you would know too that in the wellbeing space, there's lots of information out there. There's misinformation, there's ideas that are taken and interpreted differently. And I really wanted to be able to give something that was contextualized for teachers so they could relate to it. You know, I have a lived experience of what it's like to be a teacher and a school leader and go through burnout. And it actually wasn't until I wrote my book that I acknowledged that experience. 
I hadn't spoken about it. I don't even think I'd really spoken about it to my partner who I've been with for, you know, going on 12 years. And he's been with me through that whole experience. I didn't really speak about it with my siblings whom I'm really close to. And when I started to think about, you know, what message do I want to give to teachers and leaders and people in this space who are going to read the book, I wanted to be able to let them know that it happens these things are actually probably happening more frequently than we're talking about it. We need to become better at talking about these things so we can support one another and be able to create change. But also we need to not stay in the story. We need to be able to shift to a place of accepting some things we might have done wrong or looking at things that didn't work for us, whether it's individually or collectively, and then saying, but what are we going to do next? Because that's where hope lies in knowing we create change. And that's what motivated me to write the book, that the whole piece around it's okay, whatever you're experiencing. And yes, perhaps we could do things differently, but you know, that's part of being human all of the time, but we have to have hope in it. And that's what I really wanted to be able to gift. And that's what you did. As I was reading it, I saw that you were acknowledging the reality. The demands are high. Schools are complex places to work within. and there are things that you can do. Yeah, absolutely. And I don't think we talk about that enough. Like we kind of say it in throwaway comments like, oh, it's busy or, oh, you know, we work so hard to do this or, you know, schools are like nothing else, but we don't really go, and what does that mean? And what does that look like? And who do we actually want to be when we turn up as teachers and who do we want to be as people? And that's the part that we're not very good at, the ability to stop and think because we've normalized so much dysfunction in education where we just think it's normal. And it was really interesting as I was reading your story at the start of the book about this teacher tired. And it reminds me of when I was younger, you just thought, well, teacher tired, that's the only way to be, isn't it? It's not only normal and normalized, it's expected. Because how dare you be the person that says, no, I'm not tired, I'm actually great. Like I'm over here living my best life in week seven of term two. You can't be that person at the staff room table. We're all supposed to be tired. Yes. And that's so interesting. I was working with a group of teachers early this week and it is all happening at the moment. I've been working with them for a while and I was saying, so have you noticed any differences in the way that you're coping this term compared to this time 12 months ago? And they were saying, yes, because it's so obvious because everyone around me is still the same still managing in the same way, I'm doing it differently. And it's really obvious just how dysfunctional some of our behavior is and how much, because one person does it, then everybody does it. And then think, if I don't do it that way, then I'm doing something wrong. There's something wrong with me. Yeah. And not only wrong, but then where do I belong? You know, because it impacts our sense of belonging. And in school, we, ha- we do have these amazing communities and networks of teachers that do in some ways become our family during the day and you know even in our social life and if you are not going to be part of that I'm so tired or so busy or this is so hard conversation then where do you belong and that's a huge piece of work around not only that individual sense of feeling like you've got people and you've got a community but also what does that say about our collective identity Yes, and this is the crux of well-being where I don't think a lot of people want to talk about it because it's really deeply uncomfortable that as we're changing things, we're changing at this identity level 
And if our identity is I'm busy, I get things done, ask a busy person, I'm a producer, performer, if you're really tied to that, if you move towards cutting yourself some slack, taking it a little bit easier, having some rest and recovery, your body is going to violently resist that and say, no, 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 no. We've got things to do. Haven't you seen that list? What are you doing? Yeah, because it's like you, you go into a form of shock because it's so unknown. I remember when I first learned to rest, like it's a skill to learn to rest and I couldn't do it. I didn't know how. In fact, when I first went through my, my experience of burnout and chronic stress and had to introduce rest as a daily activity, I would schedule it at a certain time, rest between 3 and 4 p.m. And well, not even that long. I think I you know, start the 15 minutes of just trying to sit and read a book or do nothing or see what I feel like doing at that point in time. It's so like when I think about it now, it's like uncomfortable on the inside. It makes you nervous. You think, oh, I can't do it. Am I safe to stay here? What will happen if I don't do something? I can see dishes that need to be put away or I should be doing something else. I'm not being as productive. What will people say? It's a whole space to work through when you start doing things differently and it's scary. It's super scary. And then we're so mindful of what will other people think. And that keeps us so stuck in school. But I think what's interesting about that is if you're thinking what will other people think, the other people are probably just thinking, what will you think? So no one's really thinking about anyone else anyway, you know, or <laughs> just too busy thinking, what does everyone else think? So we could kind of collectively let that go. Because everyone's so invested in themselves, it doesn't really matter. And also, if we can have that courageous action, we're giving permission for other people to do the same. I was having a conversation just this week with an educator who knew that they needed to go to the toilet at the start of the day. They knew, oh, I need to go to the toilet. But then lessons happened, then recess happened, then students needed them, teachers needed them. And then it wasn't until the end of the day after lunch in the classroom and a student asked them, I'd go to the toilet and they're thinking, oh, yeah, I would love to go too. But now's not the time and I haven't gone. And then we had this conversation around what would be possible if you were heading to the toilet during a break and a student or colleague came to you, is it possible for you to say, I've just got got to go to the toilet, I'll be back in five minutes. And for them, it's like, oh gosh, that feels hard. Like it it feels hard to consider my needs and articulate it where the other person would be, of course, like go. I'll be, I'll just wait. And isn't that it? Like we genuinely worry about upsetting or offending or disappointing someone, but people are genuinely kind. They have good big hearts. And if you need to go to the toilet or, you know, sometimes I'm like, I really want to have this conversation, but I need to eat. My brain's not working properly and I want to give you my best brain. So just let me put some food in my mouth. Yeah. People are like, oh yeah, I get that because we're all the same in those aspects. And so no one's going to be like, I can't believe the person had to go to the toilet. No one's going to do that. So it's okay. (laughs) And it's so powerful just to have these simple conversations. It is okay to rest. It is okay to go to the toilet. It is okay to have a drink of water. It is okay to have lunch. These are all human basic needs, which we allow our students to do at any time of the day. But for some reason, we have really strict rules on ourselves what's possible and what's not. Even things like, you know, I think eating in the classroom, sometimes in our lunch breaks, we're so busy planning, prepping, organizing, we don't get to have lunch. And at one point, I just decided I was going to eat in the classroom with my students, have a few mouthfuls, teach, kids are doing something because 
It's either that or not eat. And at some point we have to make a choice about what actually serves us and not eating or not going to the toilet, not resting is not only not good for us, but it isn't good for us. Yes, because we're role modeling to them what adulthood is and what happens when you become an adult. And also we're modeling that their needs are more important than ours. And so as they become adults, they think that their needs are more important than maybe their partners or the people that they work with. Mm -hmm. Or as you become an adult, your needs become less. So as we're thinking about these topics, why do you think we struggle so deeply to take action on our own behalf? I think there are a few things. I think the first thing always comes down to how aware are you of the things that might be impacting your well-being? And if you're in a space of blame, denial, justification, excuse making, or if you're in that space of taking radical responsibility and saying, you know what, I actually can see this, I'm aware of it, and I accept it for what it is, and I have the responsibility to drive change around it. And when you are unaware, when you're kind of in that space of, it's not me or it's the system's fault or it can never change. You're disempowering yourself to be able to do anything. And in some ways, staying there is easier because you get to stay the same and it's comfortable and it's safe and you know it. But shifting to a space of taking that responsibility and looking at doing things differently can absolutely dramatically uncomfortable and can not only cause you to have to put in work and effort to do things differently, for yourself, but also communicating that with other people, communicating it with your colleagues or your family, going against the grain. Again, coming back to, you know, where do I belong if I change these behaviors or behaviors or habits? And so it's not just about, oh, I'll go to bed earlier or I'll make sure I leave at four o'clock in the afternoon or I'm not going to check my emails because those decisions, even though they're empowering and supporting us, also impact other people. And I think that's where that line sits around. You know, if we do those things, we have to be aware of who it's impacting and feel confident and brave and vulnerable enough to say, hey, I'm not going to be checking my emails when I go home anymore. So, you know, from like five o'clock in the afternoon until eight in the morning, I'm not going to check my emails. If there's an emergency, call me. But outside of that time, I'm not going to check them. And what that means is other people have to get on board with that boundary. They have to be able to think ahead and respect it. And we talk about that a lot, you know, respecting boundaries and supporting each other's well-being and it actually looks like tangible things, tangible conversations, tasks, activities we're engaging in that are almost like a no-go zone to talk about. And I think that's why it can be really hard to make that change. Yes, because we have to know what we want and what we need and then we have to find a way to articulate it and that's not generally our strong suit. Yeah, and in some ways when you do that, depending on how other people perceive that, It may be in some ways seen as you're not committed to your job or you're not invested or you don't care. And that couldn't be further from the truth. It's just about finding ways that support your well-being, how you want want to work and who you want to be. And it might be different to someone else's or different to how it's been done in the past. And I think that's where these conversations get, get a little bit tricky. And when you're thinking about school systems, Where do you think we get it wrong? What are some of the mistakes we make? I think there's many, but I want to start by saying they're not intentional. And I don't think that we've made mistakes with the purpose of trying to harm teachers' well-being or with trying to, you know, sometimes I see things around, you know, we take advantage of our teachers or we work some too hard. And I don't think that's ever anyone's intention 
I don't think there's a group of leaders in any school sitting around going, how do we make wellbeing for teachers really hard? Like, how can we get more from them by giving them less? That's not what anyone is doing. And so I think some of the things that we've done wrong, first of all, are trying to do it all. And we just can't do everything. And when we think about doing it all, what that means is we're doing it all for our students. We're doing it all for what parents expect. We're not doing it all for ourselves. We're doing it for others. And that's a little bit different to putting someone else first. That's actually about how many more things can I do? Because we want to put on this facade of schools are magical places and they can be and they should be, but it's about coming back to, well, actually, what's our core purpose here and does it align? I think the other thing, the other mistake we've made, and I know that we're starting to reconsider this, is there is a significant amount of power and control and autonomy that individuals have and schools have as a whole. And we're not leveraging that. We're, we're outsourcing that in a way by saying, well, I can't do anything until the system changes or I can't do anything until the school changes or I can't do anything until blah is different. It's almost like saying, I can't eat healthy until supermarkets stop selling junk food. We all can do some things that perhaps we're thinking we can't. But again, that's about being brave enough to take the leap and the risk and sitting in the uncomfortable space of, is it going to work? And what will it mean? And how will I know it's having impact? And what about the time and space we give to that? And what can we let go of? And how do I say no? And so I think when we recognize that we can change some things, then we can let go of thinking that it's someone else's responsibility to fix. And either individually or as a school, start to throw out new ideas, new possibilities, new options and say, what can we do here? I think that's exciting. And it's so empowering as an individual and as a collective to think about within this reality, what is possible for me? What is possible for us? And, you know, there are schools doing amazing things at the moment, like starting to play with, oh, could we do four and a half day weeks or four day weeks? And can we have flexible start and finish times? And can we reorganize non-contact time so all teams are off at the same time and they can work together? Or can we have rotating staff rosters so some might start earlier and some might finish later and there are opportunities and possibilities that exist if we're brave enough to take them. Yes and this is where the door is open right now for more creativity. We've had this upheaval for the last few years and we're just ripe to do things differently and to really think about within our system what can we do? Where is the flexibility instead of feeling like we have to just go back to what we've always done. We've been focused on this conversation, as you said, for a number of years, but students have been at the centre of that. And I would love to see us go even further and say, well, how can we be creative in regard to how we structure our school to support staff and wellbeing and wellbeing of staff? Because isn't that a huge part of the conversation as well? Not just students, but also we know that teachers are leaving. We know that teachers are not entering the profession. So isn't part of this too around, let's think differently about how schools are designed so we support staff and their well-being to attract them and keep them in this profession? Yes, because that's one of our biggest challenges at the moment is keeping them engaged in the profession and inspired in the profession. When people talk about the teacher shortage, yes, there's a shortage of teachers and we've got a lot of registered teachers who are not willing to teach in the current system. So they're there, but the way that things are set up, it's not inviting to come back. Yeah, which I saw something this morning similar around there is not a teacher shortage. There's just 
a system that doesn't support people with degrees who want to work in it. And there's a plethora of other jobs that are far more rewarding, fulfilling, engaging and allow for time and freedom. Yes. And that rings so true to me. And it's been really interesting in the last six months working with leaders, the ones who really invest in their staff. And then I talk to other schools where it might be a head of department and the leadership aren't quite on board yet. And it gets me really curious because my sort of thoughts on the topic is if school leaders aren't investing and taking this really seriously, in three to five years, they'll look around and think, where's everyone gone? Where's staff gone? But other schools in three to five years will have this beautiful culture, a place where people want to be, where students want to learn and staff want to learn. And it takes effort, but it's going to be worth the effort in the future. Absolutely. Two, I think the effort also comes in press reports. And, and that sounds kind of contradictory, I know. We have to be brave enough to press pause on some initiatives and things right now. In fact, stop and instead consider what if every change we made or everything we implemented or everything we did differently was done through the lens of staff well-being and keeping our staff, not students. That is a very different way for leaders to think. And so I feel for school leaders too, because they've been tasked with fixing staff and teacher well-being. And Many of them, most of them are teachers like you and I were, whatever background that might be, primary school, PE, science, history, not having a background in psychology or HR or anything to do in this space that is needed to be able to understand staff well-being and, and well-being of adults and people, yet they're being told to fix it. And so it's like we're looking to them to have the answers, but they themselves are learning just as much as we are right now and as their staff are. And so we have to we have to come together and say, hey, this is not someone's job to fix. It's not leadership's job to sit around a table and decide what to do. This is everyone's work. So let's stop everything right now and ask ourselves, what are we doing together, all staff, as we look to better enhance staff wellbeing so that we have this amazing school and culture. Yes, and putting all people at the centre of the decisions instead of just student-focused. Like, let's just do people-focused because there's the students involved, we've got staff involved, but also we've got parents involved. So if we've got all this additional stuff, which is wonderful, yes, kids enjoy it, but what is the ripple effect? I'm thinking of an example. So netball was a big thing at the schools that I worked at and there was always a proportion of students that didn't make the netball team which always caused a bit of tension. So me, don't like tension. I create the rising stars in that ball. But then I've got to do all the forms, all the equipment, do all the things. I've got to be there all the time. And then that means the parents have got to work out the logistics of that. And then the school's got to work out something. And so maybe we just say, no, great idea. But we actually don't have the capacity. The students already have enough on. The parents have enough on. And you definitely have enough on with all of your big ideas. So let's just stop and see that even though it's a great idea, we actually don't have the capacity at the moment to make that happen. Yeah, and that's about considering the resources we have available when we make decisions, not but it's good for the kid. No about saying, well, hang on, the resources we really have available to us are time, energy, and money. They are the three resources that we all have access to. So do we have enough time? to be able to fit this in our schedule. And if I say yes to this, what am I saying no to? And if I say no to it, what am I saying yes to? And then do we have energy? So energy is capacity, the ability cognitively, physically, mentally, emotionally, 
all of that to engage in it. And again, if I say yes to this through my energy, then what am I not giving energy to? Money comes into it because there, are, whether it is school budget, whether it is family budget, it's a resource we have to identify in these decisions as well. But we don't always make decisions through that lens. We make decisions based on, but it's good for the students and so that's it. It's not helpful for anyone within the system. And I use this in my own personal example in family decisions. Our family doesn't make decisions based on what's best for the kids. It's what's best for the system. Yes, the kids might want to do five activities, but we don't have the resources to do five activities because it's just not going to happen. And so as we make decisions, it's what's best for the system. And I think this is where we're moving. And it's really exciting to start to be moving this direction around what's best for the system. Maybe we don't have to have the musical every year. Maybe we have it every two years, or maybe we just don't have it anymore. And it's all of those things that, those extra things that we love in schools that we seem to think we need to do all of all of the time that actually take up those key resources and impact why in some way our classroom teaching job is becoming hard. It's because there's so many other things pulling us. Oh, I remember racing into classes and you think, oh, all these things I've got to get going and sorted for before and after. It was hard to be actually present in the teaching. It's worth considering, at least, I think if you're a leader listening, it really is worth considering. If I was to make decisions through the lens of what is best for all people with the resources we have, what decisions might be different? And then for the individual listening to think about, can I start to consider my needs, my resources as I'm come to this decision instead of just thinking oh it's the kids will love it do you have the capacity to manage it and also sometimes we're like yeah yeah I can do that I can do that but inside we know it's it's tuning into that that piece of that real gut response of like I'm saying yes out loud I hear the words come out of my mouth but inside a little piece of me is like don't do that don't do that and we get so used to just instantly saying yes that we forget that there's a person inside saying slow down, stop. We don't listen to that voice. We just keep going. And it's such a practice because people pleasing is something that I default back to time and time again. Given the right context, I'll do it. And recently I've had to say no more. And it is so uncomfortable. It's so uncomfortable that as it's happening, I'm kind of half laughing at myself because I know what I want to say. I really know that I don't have the capacity for it. But then there's this little voice that says, I'll just make it work or just delay it and say you'll get back to them later. Don't say no now, just delay it and say it later. And now I'm getting so much better at listening to that little voice that says, no, you do not have the capacity. The cost is too high. Make it quick. Just rip the Band-Aid off. And I'm getting better and better at it, but it is so hard. It's a skill. It's a muscle that we need to strengthen over time. Hugely. And it's also about knowing your values in terms of and behaviors and how you want to live, who you want to be. And so we are often just doing things or saying yes because we think we should or because we think someone else is expecting us to. And what we're not asking and what we're not tuned into is actually, is this decision in line with the life I want to live? Is this decision in line with the person I want to be or the mother I want to be or the partner I want to be or the friend I want to be? And is this actually the right decision for what I'm trying to cultivate in my life right now? And imagine what our life would be like if we paused a little bit more often just to consider those questions. A beautiful friend 
and mentor of mine, Emily Chadbourne says, you can't always control your first thought, but you can control your second. And I think that's just an amazing piece of advice for all of us. Your first thought is that hardwired instant, it's like your muscle memory. It's just got a fire in there and you need to keep that to yourself. Like your first thought should only be spoken in here. I'm pointing to my head, but to you. And you need to listen to that and then think, is this really what I want to say out loud? Because you can control your second thought by using some of those reflection questions. But that first thought, it will trip you up. It is there because it is an old pattern or belief until you turn it in to that overused muscle. We're just naturally like, no, I don't have capacity for that right now. So when you look back on your journey from those days of being teacher tired and crawling through the door, having to lie on the floor just to catch your breath for a little bit of time, what do you think has changed most for you? So many things. Um, I think the biggest thing is I actually learned to slow down. I learned to be okay with slowness and nothing. And that actually taught me to tap into how I really feel. So not what I think I should do. When I was teaching and a school leader, I thought I had to be go, go, go all the time and busy and having my you know hand in every pie and doing the things and not only in the workplace, but then studying and ridiculous amounts of exercise and always from the outside looking like I had it all together and was this crazy person just running around doing a bunch of stuff. And people would say, oh my goodness, how do you keep it all together? How do you do it? You do so many things. And I suppose externally, I looked like it, I had it go, all going on. I did not. I, mean, I didn't know at the time, but I didn't. And so when I think about who I was then and tap into who I am now, my energy is completely different. So much more calmer and I don't feel the need to rush and do things. I can easily say, no, I'm not doing that. And on, you know, on the weekends, I would plan every minute of my life to make sure I was doing something productive or useful. And now the weekend can roll around and my plan is to do nothing. And so when someone says, what are you doing on the weekend? I say, I'm doing nothing. In fact, my partner will say, what do you want to do on the weekend? And I say nothing. And for him that and I, that's still a new space to navigate because he's like, what do you mean you're doing nothing? Like we always do something. I'm like, yeah, I'll just decide when the minute arrives. And Years ago, I wasn't like that. In fact, it would freak me out if we didn't follow my 30-minute schedule. That being said, though, I am five, six years into this journey and it hasn't been easy. There's been so many learnings and still now there are still times where I'm like, why am I doing that? Why did I... Why did I overplan my weekend? Why am I stressing out about something? Like, I don't need to. It's always ongoing work. It never ever stops. <laughs> I love that idea of new level, new devil. Just when you feel like, yeah, I'm good with this, something else will pop up. You're like, oh, next layer. It's kind of like when you're working in schools, you feel like, yeah, I'm, I'm good at my classroom. I've got this sorted. But then you step into this leadership role, like, oh, new things to learn. And then in next step, same thing with our growth, same thing with our well-being. The more we become aware of things, the more we notice things, the more opportunities we have to do things differently and to be different in the world. Yeah. And I think that the key point for me in being able to manage that now lies in knowing when there's resistance or when I'm like, oh, this doesn't feel good. Or why didn't I like that? Or why, like if I'm over whinging about something or if I'm over obsessing about doing something, I'm like, well, clearly you don't want to, or it's annoying you. So why? Be really curious about those emotional states in terms of how they might be showing up and affecting you. But what's 
causing them because when you figure out the cause, like, oh, I'm just talking about having to go to this social event because actually I don't want to when I'm tired. Okay, so don't overcommit. Like really look at what's happening in your life and know that I can only probably hold one social event on a weekend. No, one a fortnight. <laughs> because I'm <laughs> quite like my own time. And so know that. Know what happens when you do those things. And if there's resistance or uncomfortableness, there's some valuable data to pay attention there, not just skim over and think, I can't wait till it's finished. Oh, you've given us so much to think about, Amy. To wrap up this beautiful conversation, I'd love to invite you to finish four sentences. Are you up for that? Absolutely. I'm inspired by? I'm inspired by everyone who really steps up and has these conversations like this, who's ready to push the boundaries of what we think normal is. I think it's a great time right now because people are starting to do this. And I think the more people that do it, the more inspiring it is and the more hope it gives others. When life feels hard. I ask why. Like I was just saying, I really, I pause and I say, why does it feel hard right now? What's going on? And is it something you can control? Is it something you can't control? Can you do something differently? Or do you just need to dig in there and actually work through it and come back later? An underrated skill is? Uh, Learning to rest. And I'm looking forward to? I'm just looking forward to seeing, you know, in five years time what schools look like because I genuinely believe it is going to be different. I I do think we're going to see some big shifts and I can't wait to look back on conversations like this and think, remember when we were floating ideas and look at it now. Amy, thank you so much for writing this book and opening up real and much needed conversations in schools and the wider community. And thank you for being guest on School of Wellbeing. Thank you so much for having me. I hope this conversation has inspired you to take courageous and values-aligned action in your life. Amy's book, Teacher Wellbeing, A Real Conversation for Teachers and Leaders is now available online and would be the perfect resource to have in your staff room. To learn more about Amy and her wonderful work at The Wellness Strategy, see the show notes for details. If you found this episode helpful, please share it with anyone you know that would benefit from listening. Or reach out to me on LinkedIn or Instagram and let me know what resonated most with you. To learn more about the ways that I can help you and your school community thrive, visit my website, openmindeducation.com. There you can book me to speak, learn about my game-changing wellbeing programs or download my free five-step energy guide. You can find all the links from today's episode at openmindeducation.com forward slash episode 89. Thank you for listening to this episode of the School of Wellbeing and I look forward to sharing more heartfelt conversations with you next week. Until then, take care and take deliberate action.